Good morning. <laughs> this section. We see you. You're here. We recognize you're here. Uh, and good morning to everybody else. Glad that you're with us this morning, that you braved the snow if you're here in person. And thank you to those that are joining us online as well. My name's Ben. I'm a vicar here, which means I'm a pastor in training. And it's my privilege to share from God's word with you this morning as we're continuing on in this series called Courageous. We're working through the book of Joshua. And a couple quick things to highlight. Uh, if you've been with us, you've, you probably already know these things, but I uh, just want to point them out yet again. That to get the most out of this plan, uh, that you can find a reading plan online. You can also find it in our app. And there's some questions too, these car ride, couch side questions. So when you're headed home, or if you're at home right now, that after the service, you can talk about these questions. They're a great resource to just process the message, what you heard, and talk about it. And if you want to go even deeper, there are some dig deeper questions as well. Uh, and a reminder for, for parents in the room that your kids over in SG Kids right now, they are learning the same lesson at their level right now, and that we intend for you to be that primary faith instructor in your child's life, and we want to resource you in that way so you can have these conversations with them so you can continue to dig deep in that way. And so this morning, we're continuing on, like I said, in this book of Joshua, and we're going to be in Joshua 5 and 6. So if you want, go ahead and grab a Bible. They should be in the chairs in front of you. If you're in the front row, you can grab it underneath your chair, and you can turn to page one, uh, 180. And if you are a guest this morning and you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to take that with you. That's our gift to you today. You are also given uh, a note card. Everybody has a note card on your way in? Okay, I have a quick, I have a quick homework assignment for you. It's really easy. Uh, you can pull that note card out. You can also grab a pen from the chair back in front of you. And it's really easy. You guys can all manage this. And for those online, you guys can find some paper as well. And all I want you to do is I want you to write down your, your, uh, your name, plan, like Ben's plan, Tim's plan, Quinton's plan, just your plan. And you don't need to list out what your plan is, but what we're going to be talking about today is this idea of having a plan. Because all of us have some sort of plan, right? Some of you might be planned out five years. Some of you might be planned out 10 years. Some of you are planning towards retirement. Some of you are planning to expand your family. We all have plans. And so this is just going to represent your plans, and you can hang tight uh, with that and make sure that you just write that, and you can just uh, use it as a bookmark if you'd like. Uh, and then we're going to start with this idea, this idea of being foolish but effective. What I mean by this, I this idea here is, when, when in your life have you seen something that's unusual, it's unorthodox, it's, it's not ordinary, but it's still effective? It, it just might not be commonplace. This happened uh, a, a little while ago with this NBA player who has the ball in his hands. Does anybody know who that is? Wilt Chamberlain, yes. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain back in the day, was one of the most dominant basketball players in the league at the time. The only basketball player in history to actually score 100 points in a single game. You know, averaging triple doubles for seasons on end, being an all-star, yet he had a kink in his armor. He was not a perfect basketball player because he had an atrocious free throw percentage. So he played for seasons. This is a grown man, super athletic, great at the game that he played, yet he was not good at free throws. And so one season, after being in the NBA for several seasons, he sought out a coach to try to figure out, for someone as big and as strong and as tall as him, how, what, was, what are going to be the best mechanics? How could he maybe potentially tweak his free throw shooting style so he could increase his percentage? And what you see there is him actually in mid-shot because he switched over from the traditional cool guy overhand shot 
to the really lame granny style. <laughs> this is like something you'd see on a children's playground, right? And this is a grown man, a, a professional basketball player, arguably the best professional basketball player at that time, shooting granny style. It would look foolish, right? It did look foolish. It looked odd. He was one of, I think, maybe two people in the entire NBA at the time that shot that way. And do you know what happened to his free throw percentage that season? It went up. He was willing to look foolish because it was effective. And as we follow Joshua and the Israelites today, what we're actually going to see is the same thing. They're going to do some things that, according to their enemy, according to the world, is going to look a little bit foolish. It's going to look a little bit odd and out of place and unorthodox. But what we're ultimately going to see is it's going to prove to be effective. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and open them up. We're going to be in Joshua, starting off in Joshua chapter 5 in verse 1. And it says, As soon as the king of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. These people have heard about the Israelites. They know about the Israelites. They have heard word that God dried up the Red Sea 40 years ago. And now they hear just recently God dried up the waters in a similar yet a little bit different way of the waters of the Jordan so that the people of Israel could cross. And this is no small group of people. This is not just a small clan. This is, this is a nation crossing these waters into this promised land by some estimates, could have been as low as a million, could have been as many as two million people crossing over, and that they're hearing word that God is doing something miraculous, and these people are coming. So you can imagine these other kings are starting to get a little nervous, and as it says here, their hearts melted. And then we see something really unusual happen. So this, na this nation crosses over, and the first thing that God has them do, at that time the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel. This is odd, right? This, is, this seems like out of place. They, they have two million people. They have a new commander. Moses is dead. He's, he's not on the scene anymore. Joshua's there. They're ready to take the land. They've not yet fought a battle yet, but their feet are now in the promised land. And the first assumption would be like, all right, let's get to war. Let's start taking over the promised land. Yet the very first thing that God has them do, other than setting up, the 12 stones that we heard about last week from the Jordan, is he has them, all the men, circumcise themselves. Then it says a second time here, because this is the, the second time in Israel's history since the Exodus. That back when Moses and the Israelites left, it happened then, but it hasn't happened for 40 years. And this is a whole new nation at this point. No one who has now crossed the Jordan, with the exception of Joshua, had been in Egypt. So all of these guys, this is, now all the fighting men are called to do this thing. And they, need, they needed to make flint knives to do that. And when the, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. So what's the big deal? Why is this such a big deal? Why would God have him do this? Well, if we actually look back to the original promise, God gave Abraham, the, the, the father of this entire nation, way back when, he gave them several promises, time and time again. But at 99 years old, when God was reminding Abraham of the promise yet again, that he was going to have a son, and that he would have 
uh, be the father of a great nation and that he was going to give him this promised land that Joshua and the Israelites now stood in, God made a covenant with Abraham, the 99-year-old who had yet to have a son by his wife. He had the son Ishmael at this time. He didn't have Isaac yet. And God made that covenant with him and Abraham fulfilled the covenant by circumcising himself. And so Joshua and the Israelites are here in the promised land that was promised to Abraham, their forefather, and they are now committing the same act of circumcision, upholding the covenant that God gave to Abraham, and they're doing it as a nation. But why is this foolish? Why, why is this foolish? Because it said they had to heal. And Joshua and his people would have known this, but maybe you don't know this. In Genesis chapter 34, there's two sons, Levi and Simon. And they're not too happy because some Canaanite guy had slept with their sister. And so they actually tricked him. They went to that Canaanite guy who had slept with their sister, and they said, you know what? If you want to marry her, here's what you can do. You and your whole household, you guys can circumcise yourself, and then you can be part of our nation. But they didn't actually mean it. And three days after they all circumcised themselves, Levi and Simon went in and killed all of them because they were incapacitated. They weren't able to fight. And so why this is such a big deal, in my opinion, is because now they're at Gilgal. Now they are a stone's throw away from Jericho, this major fortified city. They're in enemy territory, and they take every one of their fighting men, and they incapacitate them. If the Amorites, if the Canaanites had caught wind of what the Israelites had done, they could have been annihilated. They could have been wiped out. Yet by faith, Joshua and all the Israelites believe to uphold God's covenant, to do what God had called them to do, was more important than their own strategy or battle plan. That they were willing to do that, even if it seemed a little bit foolish, we're going to see that that was effective. So they did that first by faith. And then the next action that they take, they say, the, the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased, the day after, they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer any manna, manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Again, something that hasn't happened for 40 years is the Israelites hadn't celebrated the Passover. And the Passover being this, this meal that was celebrated as first in Egypt before they actually left, that God told them to sacrifice an unblemished lamb, to put the, the blood on the doorpost, and that the angel of death was going to come and take the firstborn of every household who didn't have blood on the doorframe. And so they're remembering this meal. This is the first Passover in 40 years. So not only did they stop and incapacitate all of their fighting men, but rather than going right to war, there they are, just a few miles from the first city that they need to take, this important city that they need to take. They stop, gather the resources that they needed to celebrate this meal. And then what I also find interesting here is that it, it records the fact that manna ceased. For those that don't know, manna is this miraculous, supernatural food that fell from heaven six days a week for the Israelites for the 40 years that they were in the desert. And it, it, it actually sounds like, I don't know how bad it would have been because they were like baked cakes that taste like honey. So they just had 40 years of Krispy Kremes, essentially. <laughs> and yet the people complain. And so this manna, this supernatural food, stopped, which I find curious. So they're doing what God told them to do, but he's no longer providing for them in a supernatural way. What I recognize as you look closer at it is that God still provided. There they were. They, he, God brought them to the promised land, and he was now going to provide in a natural way 
through the land, through the food, through that region, he no longer needed to provide in this supernatural way anymore. That he brought them there. And so then we see this other interesting thing happen here. So by faith, they were circumcised. By faith, they celebrated the Passover. They remembered God's goodness towards them and his mercy towards them and that death passed them over. And then Joshua was by Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and, and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? A very appropriate question at this point. Again, miles from this enemy city and seeing someone with a drawn sword, of course, Joshua, the, com the commander of Israel, is going to ask this question and try to figure out, are you an Israelite who's way out of line? Like, you probably shouldn't be here this close to me. Why is your sword drawn right now? Or are you an enemy and you're about to get wiped out? He asks this question, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And this response is amazing. And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? I just find this astounding and interesting that Joshua asking this question of this, like this super, what we're coming to find out is this supernatural visitor that he has there. Are you for us or against us? Which is a question we might ask ourselves sometimes in our lives. Is God for me? Is he with me? Or in my case, I grew up in Lutheran schools, so I went to faith-based city and we played basketball against Emmanuel-based city. Which one was God for? <laughs> the answer is no, right? No, he's God. He's not for what, he's for everyone. But in that case, he's not for one or the other. And if you're asking the question, is God for me? Yes, he's for you. But we actually see more importantly come through this is that are we for him? Are we willing to take the same posture as Joshua did very appropriately to fall down and recognize his position as a servant rather than to stand up to him anymore? And, and what we, we know of this commander of the Lord's army is that, that it, this is something supernatural. That this could be a messenger, an angel, or it could be something, uh, a theophany or Christophany. This means a visit of God in a, in a supernatural way. And it could actually be the, the pre-incarnate Jesus. We don't know for certain. But what we do know is this is a message that is coming from God and coming to Joshua, and he responds in the appropriate way and sees himself as a servant. And so do you see yourself that way? Do you, do you see yourself as God's servant? Do you recognize that you as a believer are God's servant? And that as you go through your days and weeks and months and years, that the things that we plan out and the things that we do should act as service to God. That what we do and what we plan always comes underneath the authority of God. But oftentimes, I mean, if I'm going to be honest about myself, oftentimes I might think about, you know, yeah, I want God to be a part of my plans, but, you know, to help my plans come forward and my plans to work out. I just want God to be like my helper rather than me be his servant. But what Joshua is willing to do here is to say, no, I am God's servant. Yes, I might be 80 years old. Yes, I might be leading a nation of up to 2 million people. Yes, I have fought battles before. Joshua certainly could have figured out how to take Jericho, in my opinion. I, I think that with that nation of that size at that time and what we know of the fear of the other people, Joshua on his own could have pridefully thought, I got this. 
I got it figured out. I can take this nation. I can take, I can take this one city of Jericho. Yet he's willing to take this posture of a servant and to say, God, no, I want, I want your plan. I don't want my plan. And so God begins to give him a plan. He, he tells him, now Jericho is shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Again, you see the fear. They're basically shutting down the whole city. And then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand and its king and its mighty men of valor. That God is basically saying, game over. It's done. This city is in, is in God's hands. You are going to win this victory. Now whatever follows, Joshua knows this is going to come to pass. God said it's going to pass that we are going to get this. This is part of the promised land, and God says this city is ours, so now we just need to do what God says. And beyond just the king and the mighty men of valor, what we see later in the text is God actually calls Joshua and all the Israelites to wipe out every man, every woman, and every child, and every animal, which gets to this kind of like uncomfortable territory of the Old Testament, doesn't it? Okay, here's a God that we all know now to be loving, why would he wipe out all the people of Jericho? We have to wrestle with that as believers. It's in the text, right? This is what God's word says. So, so why would God wipe out all of these people of Jericho? Well, as we look at it, there's, I believe there's a couple of reasons. Number one, every life is in God's hands. Number two, the fact is that Jericho is in the way of the promised land. This is promised to the Israelites at this time so God can do what God wants to do. But we also see is back in Genesis, when this original promise is being made, this is God speaking to Abraham about the promised land and about the people in the promised land, and he said, they shall come back. The Israelites shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites, that is, some of the people of Jericho, is not yet complete. The sin of Jericho, the sin of the Amorites, is not yet full quite yet. And God, in his mercy, allowed those people to continue to live until their sin was full. You might be asking, well, so what sin? What, what sort of sin was filling up at this point? Number one, they're not believers of God. They don't believe in him. And from, I believe, the book of Leviticus, and I believe also the book of Deuteronomy, we can actually, from those sources, gather that these people in Jericho and the Amorites themselves had a couple of false gods, one in particular who was Molech. And parents would take their children and take it to a, hold, uh, a heated up golden idol of Moloch and set their children on this burning hot altar to this false god. And by Greek historians, not necessarily found in the Bible, but found in other sources, you actually hear that there are drummers that would play during that time. So it would be loud enough to drown out the sounds of the screams of the children so the parents wouldn't hear the sacrifice of their own children to the false god. Now do we begin to see the wickedness that God sees and that God would allow. Like, why wouldn't God wipe them out immediately if they're doing things like that? It also talks about very perverse sexual things, and you guys can dig into that if you want to. What you have to know is that God in his grace and mercy allowed these people to be here as long as they were. But they're committing all these sins that had built up to this point, and God finally said, enough. The other thing that we recognize is that everyone and every day that we have is it it's a day of grace. And so these people experienced days of grace and mercy that they were allowed to be here. And that God, God's heart is that he wants them to turn back. We know that clearly. It says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, Now say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but, th 
but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God has all of his children, not just Israel, that he longs to turn to him. Yet if we don't turn back to him, if we don't receive him for who he is, and we turn our backs on him, and he leaves us in our own wickedness, then it is our God's just and right thing to do to wipe us out. We actually see this very clearly on the cross. This is ultimately where God has shown us his true character. His character on the cross is seen more clearly than anywhere else in Scripture. The God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same God, but we see God's character here being that he is loving, but he is also just. That God loved each of us enough and every one of the Israelites enough and everyone in the world enough that he was willing to send his son to die for every single one of us, to die the death that we deserve. But we also see God's justice in that because why would his son have to die if God wasn't a just God? There was a payment that needed to be made for us to be redeemed, and that payment was Jesus Christ. And so we see his character clearly there. And so all the people of Jericho not being under the redemption of Jesus because they did not believe in God, because they did not trust in his promise, God wipes them out. Yet he doesn't wipe all of them out, and we'll see that in a bit. And now here comes this battle plan. So, so by faith, the Israelites circumcised all their men, incapacitated all of them, and could have been wiped out themselves. Then they celebrate the Passover and remember God's goodness all the way going back to the start of the Exodus. And then Joshua receives this a supernatural encounter with the commander of the Lord's army, and now he's going to receive these instructions that seem unorthodox, unusual, and foolish. He says, You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the, preach, uh, the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Again, a unique, bizarre battle plan of simply walking around the city. And what we know of it is that it was probably roughly nine acres around, that for an indiv individual to walk around it, it might have taken 20 to 30 minutes, so... 20 to 30 minutes a day for six days, the army walked around. It would have taken them longer, all of them, to walk around it, go up to Jericho, walk around the city, take the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very presence of God, which again is this very odd thing to do in battle, is to take your most holy, uh, uh, the seating place of God, so that it means so much for the people of Israel, and bring that forward to your enemy's gates, and then just walk around sit back down, do, wake up the next day, do the same thing, wake up the next day, do the same thing, until the seventh day. And what I find to be amazing about this and miraculous about this, God gives them this plan. And at least recorded in Scripture, there was not a single complaining email sent to Joshua. You know, hey, Joshua, great job leading Israel. That was cool at the Jordan. Uh, are you sure? You know, walking around walls? Like, is that, that's really going to be our battle plan? We can't just, like, siege the city till they run out of food, or we can't just figure out how to, like, scale the walls somehow. Like, 
what's recorded here is that the nation follows him, that Joshua sees this battle plan and sees it as a good thing. And now we look at that and go, yeah, that, that's what they did, but if, if we look back not that far, just one generation, Moses and the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. And the first thing that they do was not act out in faith and by faith continue to follow God. The very first thing the Israelites do once they cross the Red Sea is complain. And complain, and complain, and complain, and God gave them this plan, but they complained, and, and then they even send spies into the promised land, and then the spies come back, and they're filled with fear and say, we're like grasshoppers, we, we, we surely can't take this. They are filled with fear and doubt and their own opinions about the way that things should be done. And I believe this to be miraculous, that Joshua leading the people, and then the people themselves moving forward by faith to do things that seem unusual, and orthodox, and, and by, Jer- you know, by the standards of the people of Jericho and the rest of the Amorites and the Canaanites, they would look at this and go, that's foolish. You're just walking around a city. Yet they were willing to look foolish for the sake of God because they trusted in him. And so they followed through on this plan. They walked around the six days, and then on the seventh day, they rose early at dawn, at the dawn of the day, and marched around the city in the same manner, seven times. Again here, they have not shouted at all yet, and it's coming. And it was only that day that they marched around the city seven times on that seventh day. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you this city. And the city and all that was in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. That they took the city by this. And actually, what I find interesting, I actually looked into this, this idea of shouting to take down these, these walls. If you are familiar, you've probably seen a video of it. Maybe you've seen it in person. If you get a, a powerful singer, uh, in particular a soprano, who has a crystal glass, and she sings powerfully at the right note and the right frequency, there's something that happens called resonance, and what happens to the glass? It breaks. And so, you know, I, I went online, I was trying to look into this idea, because there's this theory of resonance of the walls of Jericho, because we don't have the walls anymore. We don't know how thick they were, how tall they were. We know that they're big. They could have been six feet wide, 12 feet, maybe 15. They, they were people that built homes in these walls, that's what we do know, and that the mass of this, the, the army of Israel at this time is many, many men, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of men going around this city, so the power of their voices could it have caused resonance within this, in those city walls. Because you actually know, the, the loudest recorded sound, I looked this up too, I just found it interesting, Arrowhead Stadium, when the Redskins uh, beat the Patriots back in 2013, 142 decibels. It would have been deafening that, that loud when they shouted at some point in a playoff game. Well, here you have more people all around this city, and could it have potentially caused resonance? Well, these experts, they crunch the numbers. They look at, the, okay, the average length of vocal cords of men and, and oh, how big were the trumpets and what the sound would have been. And they, you know, they, they put all the data in. They crunch the numbers to try to figure out what the resonance of the wall was. And do you know what they came up with? They don't know. And what, here's what I stand by, is like, that could God have brought the Israelites there, had them shout, used the trumpets, and God knew the power within the created nature that resonance would have knocked down those walls. Could God have done that? Yes, and that still would have been supernatural because God would have been the only one that knew that, yet they continued to move forward by faith. What I believe to be much more likely, because we know that the commander of the Lord's army is there, which means angel armies are there, is that they tore down those walls 
for those people and that their act is just an act of faith of shouting. Either way, God is there. God is the one that tore down those walls. And now all the things that we we just read, they said, were devoted to the Lord for destruction. The men, women, child, and all the animals, all the livestock. Yet some things weren't totally destroyed. Certain precious metals were not to be collected by the Israelites for themselves, but certain precious metals were still found useful. They were collected and put into the Lord's storehouse, and they would actually be used years later to build the temple to God. Because all the people of Jericho were no no longer useful to God because they were evil, because they didn't believe in him. Yet these things, these metals that were still useful to God, that weren't impure, were going to be used by him in his very house. Yet the gold and the silver and the other precious metals weren't the only things that found their way out of Jericho and that found their way to be used by God. Rahab found her way out of Jericho because God found her to be useful. God found her to be faithful. So only Rahab the prostitute and all who were within her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. If you were with us last week, we, in chapter 2, we get introduced to this character, Rahab, who was a prostitute who lived in Jericho, who housed messengers or who housed spies, lied to the, the own king of Jericho to protect them and made a promise with them that she would protect their lives and they would save her life that this entire city of Jericho would be wiped out. But by faith that Rahab had in the God of Israel, that she would be saved and everyone in her house was saved as well. And then we see, so the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, the people shouted the great shout and the wall fell down flat. And so the people went into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. This is the verse that our kids are looking at today and this familiar idea of these walls coming down in Jericho. That through that shout, they were able to take this city in this supernatural way to capture them. But going back to this idea of Rahab, she not only finds herself coming out of the city, but she finds herself in the New Testament. Did you know that? Two different times. In the book of Hebrews, this is the hall of faith in Hebrews, in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews is listing for us all these heroes of faith of the people of Israel. And Rahab, and even the story of Jericho finds itself there. That by faith, that's how the walls fell. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab the prostitute, she still carries that title with her. That Rahab, much like everyone else in, in Jericho, was sinful. Rahab, outside of her faith, deserve the same fate as every other person in Jericho. The only difference with Rahab was that she had faith in the true God. And that by faith, that that Rahab did not perish with those that were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The other place that we find Rahab is in Matthew chapter 1. Because this is the genealogy of Jesus. And Rahab, this Amorite from Jericho, who is sinful, becomes the mother of Boaz, who marries Ruth, and and then just down the line, we we come to Jesus. That by her faith, not only is her life spared, not only is her family life spared, but she finds her name in the word of Scripture, and she actually finds herself as part of the genealogy of Jesus. Isn't it amazing that by her faith that she was able to do that? That she was willing to do that. And so when I look at this, and I look at the plan that the Israelites would have had, 
They were willing to lay it all down and to move forward by faith. They, they were willing, again, to circumcise. They were willing to go through the Passover, that Joshua was willing to lay down his battle plans and accept the Lord's battle plan. And the people of Israel were willing to follow Joshua and, and, and lay down even their own pride and say, we don't care if this looks foolish. We don't care if this looks silly. But we're going to move forward by faith. We're going to lay down our plans because God promised this land to us. Because that's how we're called to live. We are called to live by faith. You are called to live by faith. The plans that you wrote down earlier, you know, you didn't write down specifics, but what that, what that card represents is that each of us as human beings, we make plans, especially when we have obstacles in our way. When you have an obstacle in your way, when you're trying to figure something out, when you're trying to figure out what to do at work or in an occupation or a job change, when you're trying to figure out where to go for school, when you're trying to figure out where you should live, when you're trying to figure out, what do I do if I have an unbeliever in my family? When faced with a problem, we often go straight to making a plan. What I want to propose to you is rather than going straight to making a plan, that you should cling to God's promises and move forward by faith. That God w has good promises for you. He has a good plan for you. But we have to be willing to take a humble posture the same posture of the Israelites, the same posture as Joshua, and recognize that we're servants and that we can plan all that we want in our own pride. And many of those plans won't come to pass. But that we ultimately can cling to and trust in the promises of God because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And here, I, we talk about these promises and you might go, what are the promises of God? Here they are. There you go. You're wondering what the promises of God. The promises of God for you this morning, the things that you can trust in over and above whatever plans that you have to overcome your obstacles, these are the promises you can cling to, not knowing whether those obstacles are going to fall down or they're going to stand tall in your way. But you can cling to these things. God promises to strengthen you. He promises to give you rest. He promises to take care of all your needs and to answer all of your prayers in his time and his, in his way. He promises to work out everything for your good. God promises to be with you. He'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. God promises to protect you. God promises you freedom from sin. And God promises that nothing can separate you from him. And God promises you everlasting life. This is our promised land as believers. We are not conquesting and moving forward to take temporal land here in this world anymore. We are moving forward to move God's kingdom forward and to see his promises upheld because he stands behind each of these promises. We're not called to wipe out people anymore, but we are called to bring people into the kingdom of light and out of the kingdom of darkness. And whatever season it is that you're walking through, whatever difficulty it is that you're walking to, through, I can't promise that that thing will fade. I can't promise that that thing will go away. But what I can promise is that God will be faithful and he will uphold every single one of these promises. This is not an exhaustive list, but I believe that there is probably a promise on this list today that speaks to you. There's probably a promise on this list right now that speaks to the plans that you hold in your hands. That you need to be reminded that maybe you're not in control, but you need to be reminded that God's with you. Maybe you just simply need rest because you're exhausted and you know you have a God who's going to give you rest. And so my invitation to you this morning, as you wrote down that card, and that represents for you your plans, whatever they may be, is that I invite you to lay those things down. Because on your way in, you saw some, some nice fires, which were inviting as you came in on a cold day. But on the way out, you're actually going to find them to be useful. 
But my invitation to you is on your way out that you take those plans and just as a symbolic gesture is I'd love for you to lay those things down. Lay down your plans. Lay down your pride. Lay down your ability to just continually grip in control and grit your teeth and think that you have it all figured out or you want to figure it all out. You want to make it all work. Lay all those things down. And rather than clinging to those plans so tightly that you would walk out and you would cling to one of these. You would cling to the promises of God because these are true. These are going to be upheld. And our plans shift and change with the changing world. And that as you go forward and move forward, that we can do so by faith. Like Joshua moved forward by faith, that you move, that Rahab moved forward by faith, and then us as a congregation and as individuals would move forward by faith, trusting in the promises of God. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the reminder through your word God, that you're the one that's in control and God, that we are your servants. Let us be willing to look foolish in the eyes of the world so that we can be seen as faithful in your eyes, God. Let us lay down the plans and the control and the things that we so cling tightly to in this world, God, and let us be reminded yet again that your promises towards us are good. Your promises towards us are yes and an amen in your son, Jesus Christ. God, that you have good plans for us, that you have good promises for us, God, that we can move forward no matter what we face, God, because you're with us. And let us do so that we can make a difference here in this world, that others would see us as foolish but effective here in this world to move forward your kingdom. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.